0: Today on Maine Calling, flooding on the rise. Mainers are still recovering from a series of powerful storms that ravaged the coast and flooded Maine's major rivers. The damage to some of the homes and businesses will take months or years to repair, and some were completely lost. Communities are taking steps to help pay for the recovery and plan for future floods. I'm Keith Shortall, and today on the program, we'll talk with a panel of experts about the specter of more frequent and powerful storms in Maine linked to climate change, and about the forces of nature that will combine to cause destruction. We'll also learn more about recovery efforts and steps that can be taken to prepare for floods in the future. And as always, we want to hear from you. Maine Calling is coming up.
1: Calling On Demand is made possible by Maine Seacoast Mission, strengthening Maine's coastal and island communities through education, health, and support. Learn more at seacoastmission.org. And by Maine Farmland Trust, working with farmers to grow the future of farming and food in Maine. Learn how you can get involved at learn.
0: I'm Keith Shortall, and this is Maine Calling. The series of storms we just experienced, one in December and two earlier this month, have for many served as a wake-up call that things are changing. Namely, we're seeing more frequent severe weather and historic flooding along the coast and along Maine's rivers, and that those storms are causing significant damage and displacement, and that we can expect that pattern to continue. We'll talk about that today. Joining me Sue Baker program coordinator for Maine floodplain management with Maine's department of agriculture, conservation, and forestry. Also with a department is Peter Slavinsky. He's a Marine geologist specializing in coastal management at the Maine geological survey and Jeremy Bell program director for climate adaptation with the nature conservancy of Maine. And we invite you to join and share your comments and questions. What do you want to know about preparing for the rising waters or about recovering from the recent floods? Email talk at mainpublic.org, comment on Facebook or Instagram, or give us a call. 1-800-399-3566. That's 1-800-399-3566. Peter Slavinsky, let's start with you. As a journalist, I have been now reminded for years in covering uh, climate change to not confuse climate with weather. Uh, But of late, it seems hard not to make that connection between the specter of climate change on a global level and the weather that we're now uh, seeing every day.
2: yeah Keith it's uh it's an interesting observation it's um you know there's a definitive change in our long-term trends uh that we're seeing within the state of Maine uh whether it's an increase in statewide or even regional temperatures or more importantly uh increase in precipitation that that has been been observed uh over the last hundred years or so Uh, and also one of the interesting things that's happening in the state is the trend of more frequent events of larger magnitude. So instead of getting, you know, that one inch rainfall, we're starting to see that two, three, four inch rainfall events uh, more frequently. And that's, that's something that is happening over the long term. You know, if you put a chart at a graph, looking at the long term, you'd have a smaller number of events and that would, that would get bigger and bigger and bigger, just like temperature and just like precipitation um, and just like sea level rise. Uh, some of the things that we're observing over the long term. And one of the things that's interesting uh, is also we're seeing these, and we've seen them in the past, of course, but these combined hazard events. That's where, you know, for instance, in the December and actual January, first January storm, you had a lot of snowfall um, and a lot of snow on the ground and then heavy, heavy precipitation and warm temperatures, which led to a massive release of snow melt. And precipitation on top of that into uh, our inland rivers, uh, which really is what overwhelmed those rivers, uh, in that, that December event. So, yes, there's a, you know, there's the, the short term we look at, you know, a year or so. There's these weather patterns. But over the long term, when you look at these climatic trends that we're seeing in Maine, there's an increase in temperature, uh, an increase in precipitation, and that an increase in the number of events that are bringing us larger amounts of precipitation in a shorter amount of time.
0: I read a report recently about the national climate assessment, um, projecting increases in extreme rain for parts of Maine. And I, I know you're not a meteorologist, but I, the report said that in one scenario, a County could see, you know, an 83% jump in extreme rain days. Now that's one scenario. And I'm not familiar with the, with the science there, but do you have a sense of, is this going to be just a rainier place?
2: uh it it definitely seems that way uh there's been a shift in our overall precipitation patterns to more rain especially in the winter um as opposed to the traditional snow that we're seeing uh, throughout the state of maine especially in the coastal and uh inland southern southwestern areas um there is more snowpack typically up in up in the county uh and and that is an area that has more sustained colder temperatures over time um but yeah that's certainly something that is is Impacting a large range of things, from you know winter tourism um, to when rivers are melting, uh, you know when 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 the snow melt is occurring in in, in on lakes and rivers for ice fishing. Uh, so we're not seeing as much you know time that rivers are frozen or lakes are thawing earlier. I think there's on average about two week earlier uh, than the long term average ice out on the majority of Maine's lakes, and that number varies around the state. Um, But yeah, those those changes in patterns of precipitation are certainly something we're seeing.
0: And let's go to those two storms you mentioned earlier this month, uh, the the Jan 10 and January 13th, which seemed to me from where I was sitting and observing, they seemed uh, almost like twin storms to the extent that you could even on the second day kind of go out and uh, people were actually parking and watching because they knew Um, where the water was going to come in like it had, you know, three days prior. Was that just an an unusual one, two sort of pair of storms?
2: Yeah, actually very unusual. Um, So the January 10th event, uh, both of these storms were southeasters. So that's a little bit unique for our coastline um, because we typically during the winter months see northeast storms. So the way the weather patterns set up provided for the strong onshore southeasterly flow which really impacts different areas of the main coastline uh, differently than than nor'easters if you think about it a lot of our embayments along the midcoast coast area um, you know they basically catch water when you've got southeast winds blowing into those areas over sustained periods of time and we had you know sustained wind gusts over 55 miles an hour uh, in both of those events the things that were different was that first event again was this combined hazard event where you had snowpack and then lots of rain and lots of wind falling so you had flooding from that but then there was this really significant storm surge that occurred from this that that approached four feet so it set a water level record in 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 uh Bar Harbor uh but then also came in I think third in the Portland area um and then the waves were massive we had waves that reached 30 feet offshore um and this is a trend that actually that is uh, is scientifically being seen for the North Atlantic that there's an actual increase in wave height Uh, over the long term in the North Atlantic so you combine all those things and that's the first punch Uh, so it eroded a bunch of dunes it flooded a lot of areas it weakened and collapsed some seawalls, and then on January 13th we get a second event that hit on a higher tide the waves weren't as big it didn't blow as hard and it didn't blow as long and the surge wasn't as big but it hit at a much higher tide so it was an 11.3 foot tide in the portland area so you combine that and you end up with a record water level being set in portland and that's the highest level since 1912 and then another record being set in bar harbor so bar harbor broke two records in three days um, but because of that one two punch that we had and the fact that our protective dune systems were along our really highly developed areas of the coastline that were protected by seawalls, a lot of those had already failed We had really, really intense flooding Uh, and exacerbating all of this is something that I have to point out is um, the fact that Maine is actually seeing what we call a sea level rise anomaly right now. So sea levels are trending on average at the tide gauges in Maine, about six to eight inches higher than the long term average. And that's really significant because if you think about it, our water levels, you know, typically are in this location. If you superimpose six or eight inches of water on top of that and then add surge and then add waves. You're gonna be impacting much, much higher along the coastline. So you combine all of those factors and that's why hey, we had these two historic events back to back, which statistically, we've worked with the Gulf of Maine Research Institute and we've probably calculated that to be about a 500 year event, a one in 500 year event to have these storms occur in the same year. So okay. significant.
0: Yeah, t- I'll talk more about that and about sea level rise. Um, as well in the context of these storms. I wanna to turn to Jeremy Bell with the Nature Conservancy. People now are affected by the, the people who were affected by the storms uh, uh, that experienced damage are now in the process of assessing that damage of rebuilding it. And I assume many of them are doing it as fast as they can to get back into business, to get back into normal life. And yet there there is this tension between wanting to help them restore the same building they had and the the dock that they had and the way that they had it and the sort of I guess this um inconvenient truth that we we should be preparing to be rebuild infrastructure along the coast in a way that can if not um survive necessarily the changes we can expect but to be a little more resilient and so how do we how do we resolve that tension for the immediate need to be fixed and the need to plan
3: yes Keith, thanks for having me and great question and uh i recall the meeting that pete and i both were at with a special meeting that was called by the governor and the climate council a couple of days ago where there were a number of discussions about how to build back where to build back not just building back better but um in some cases considering not rebuilding in the same location where uh the location is very vulnerable and i know that's a it's probably a a painful conversation for many especially if you live uh in a beautiful river valley or or along the coastline it's a difficult conversation to have and and a tough decision but it's really important i think after all these natural disasters that we've had. And we've had several disaster de- declarations last year. These are likely to be also federal disaster declarations. And uh, and I think it just really underscores the importance of considering where we should and should not be building as well as using um, techniques that are environmentally friendly uh, as we build back and making sure we, um, you know, retain those main values that we hold dear on protecting natural resources, protecting wildlife and the environment and and um, uh, getting people back to work, especially with all the war- working waterfront damage and the damage in Bethel from the river flooding. It's really important to get people back to work and restarting the economy in these places, but also at the same time, making sure we balance that with protecting the environment and natural resources at the same time.
2: Yeah, uh, Peter, go ahead. I just wanted to add real quick, I think Jeremy really, really nailed that very well. Um, when you think about it, the responses that we have human- as humans have to these kinds of events were really limited a little bit in terms of the way we respond. There's really four different ways. First is avoid. This is an acronym I use, AAPR, it's called. So avoid. So don't put new infrastructure in at-risk areas. Uh, that, that's a pretty simple one that relates to new things. Adapt. For existing infrastructure that's in these areas we can adapt it we can build it higher you know we can elevate it especially if it's in a floodplain things like that protect is the next one and that means everything from you know putting down rock or something like that in certain areas to protect their, your property to using nature-based solutions to uh, increasing the floodplain management uh, of, of, of different areas by using green solutions planting uh, or building dunes things like that and the last one is is relocate and in some cases you know I know those are those areas where things have been knocked down consistently uh, or you know if you're going back in and it's still a really high hazard area Relocation is some of the one of the things that we really need to consider as well.
0: And so, but who is the decider there then? So in in the case of, say, someone has a structure along the water and it looks pretty clearly that it's gonna take a beating in the years ahead. You know, who's to say, well, you can rebuild there, but you you have to do so with 12 inch thick concrete uh, lining and, you know, a a number of things that might be really expensive. Are we still sort of figuring out who gets to say that and when or is it established
2: I mean I think there I think regulation comes into play there and that's one of the things that gets at the question you asked you know there are regulations in place that are meant to make to 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 result in our infrastructure in these high hazard areas to be more resilient Um, there are building practices there's the coastal construction manual which can be followed which tells you how to do load bearing walls how high to elevate things there's floodplain management ordinances Along the coast, there's coastal sand dune rules, which govern, you know, how many times you can rebuild, how you should rebuild. So don't rebuild in exactly the same place. Move landward, go up. Uh, but you know, the all of these considerations have to come into play, including economics. You know, a lot of this is going to be driven by a private property owner's decision and what they can and can't do. There are going to be federal funds coming in, um, you know, to help with rebuilding and reconstruction and relocation and things like that um, but a lot of this will come down to personal decisions um, and you know the, the state is there to to help in providing the best information that, can, that is possible in terms of trying to reduce the vulnerability of anything that comes back into place and there are considerations for changing certain rules already um, that allow going in place and going higher or moving back and not having to go through this rigorous regulatory um scheme that you typically have to go through so you know that's kind of trying to adapt how we rebuild and relocate and respond to these kind of events in a in a flexible way without literally just saying okay we don't care about regulations everybody just do what you want to go back in place
0: and i want to stay on this topic and go to, to i want to before the break here i want to i do want to bring in um sue baker who is the program coordinator for the main floodplain management. Sue, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you, Keith. So I wondered the same question to you. This is sort of your purview. I know that you deal uh, a lot with uh, with the uh, insur- flood insurance, but just what is your take here on um, or anything else you wanted to comment on this on this <laughs> conversation about how we manage the reconstruction uh, in the flood floodplains.
1: And, yeah, I think Pete did a really good job already, Um, and I think part of it is that there are a number of different regulations that apply. Um, So right now, I think communities are, you know, struggling with, you know, what they need to do under, you know, different ordinances. Um, Certainly from a floodplain management standpoint, um, you know, individuals that are in buildings homes that have received damage Um, if they had flood insurance um, you know that will be available uh, to help them recover Uh, for those that don't have insurance like pete said there will be um, grant funding and disaster assistance um, that will likely be available Um, i think we're waiting now to hear uh, which of these three events uh that will be declared you know a presidential uh, di- you know declared disaster so um i agree with pete it's you know what can um the property owners do to rebuild you know more resilient and for us in floodplain that means building higher building back further uh those kinds of things so It's definitely, you know, difficult.
0: (laughs) We'll get more into flood insurance because I know there'll be interest uh, in this, but we need to take a quick break and um, we will do that now. You're listening to Maine Calling. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Keith Shortall. Our topic today is flooding in Maine, what to expect in the future and what we can do about it. With me today, Jeremy Bell. He's the program director for climate adaptation with the Nature Conservancy, Maine. Sue Baker, program coordinator for Maine floodplain management, and Pete Slavinsky, uh, a marine geologist at the Maine Geological Survey. Both Sue and Pete are with the Maine Department of Agriculture, Conservation, and Forestry. Share your comments and questions. What do you know about flooding or flood insurance or climate impacts affecting our state? Email talk at mainpublic.org, comment on Facebook or on Instagram, or give us a call. 1-800-399-3566. That's 1-800-399-3566. And why don't we go to the phones now. We'll go to Frank in Bar Harbor, who may have a question that will, uh, will lead to part of the conversation I wanted to get to. Frank, welcome to the program.
3: Yes, uh, uh, this this radio show and and other um, news outlets like it is really just the extreme left trying to control our lives with with mandates and regulations. Um, Weather just happens and we need to move on and and end this by voting for Donald Trump.
0: Okay, well, Frank, that's interesting. That's not what Frank said he was going to say in his note. But, hey, we're not surprised. Uh, let's try Larry in Bangor. Hi, Larry. Welcome. Larry, can you hear me? It's me. Yes, Larry, go ahead, please. Gee, um, I'm on the radio? Yes, you are. Go ahead with your question.
3: I didn't realize it was that fast. Um, yeah, it's only going to get worse. There's already in uh, in Florida, people are having trouble getting any insurance because of the problems with the weather. And people need to start recognizing that and move much higher and build
2: much more sturdy.
0: Okay, Larry, thanks. And this uh, let's segue right then into flood insurance, Sue Baker, because. Um, People. Some people may assume, well, if I, if uh, my house is inundated by water, it's it's covered under my homeowners homeowners. But in fact, it, it it isn't right. And so, explain the the flood insurance landscape, if you if you would, for us, for those who are uninitiated.
1: Okay, well, flood insurance is available uh, federally backed flood insurance from the National Flood Insurance Program for all of the communities in Maine uh, that participate in the NFIP. Um, So here in Maine, that includes probably about 98% of communities, and that includes, um, you know, the unorganized territories that are managed by the Land Use Planning Commission. So it seems to me that we are definitely underinsured as a state or as property owners. Uh, right now, there are only about 5,000 plus insurance policies in the state of Maine. And given you know, the, the amount of coastline, uh, major rivers and lakes that we have, um, that's not many. Um, And the only time that flood insurance is mandatory is as a condition of federal financing, whether you have a mortgage or an equity loan, uh, something like that. So for most property owners, if they don't have uh, any federally backed financing, there's nobody that's gonna come along and tell them that they need to have flood insurance. So for every property owner, that's really a personal choice as far as how much risk they are willing to absorb. You know, and if someone, you know, has the financial means to fully recover from a large, event, a large flood event where they've had a lot of damage to the building, that's one thing. Um, but I would you know guess that there are property owners that aren't in that situation so for those people flood insurance is really the alternative or the only alternative that exists to make them whole again Um, so I definitely think there are a lot of property owners that are not insured and also uh, homeowners insurance doesn't cover any kinds of flooding events that come from outside of the building. And so, so people may thing, not,
0: yeah, sorry to interrupt, but people may not even know that they're in a, a, a floodplain, right? In other words, there's no requirement to disclose in real estate transactions that information, but. As I understand it, there are initiatives being put forward that would require that.
1: There is actually. um, There is a bill that's working its way through the legislature now. Um, It has already had a public hearing and a work session. Um, So the next, and it came out of the Judiciary Committee as ought to pass as amended. And, you know, this legislation would require sellers to disclose whether um, they have had any flood damage, if they've had um, insurance claims on the property. Um, So those kinds of things. So we aren't there yet, um, but we're hopeful um, that during this legislative session that there will be um, some, some future flood hazard disclosure. It is really important that people know the risk, where they live and work, um, so, um, hopefully in the future, that's where we're headed.
0: And you said that there were, I, I forgot the number, but in the neighborhood of 5,000 something, uh, uh, policies in Maine. And, and has that been on the decline? I think I read that it had been on the decline.
1: It, it has actually, you know, in the last 10 year period, um, we have lost, um, at least a third of the policy base that um there was and that always astounds me especially when we are looking at you know larger weather events um sea level rise things like that and it's it's hard for me to know why that's happening um but it is something that's certainly concerning
0: so how underinsured are, i, I, know, I know you're, you're not a you're not a, a broker but uh how underinsured are people do you think how exposed are they especially given what we just saw in the last month and a half
1: well the tough part of that is we don't really know the total number of buildings that are at risk um, that exist in the flood hazard area that will get easier as we move to digital maps Um, and the good news for people following in york and cumberland county is that the new maps are set to go effective uh, in June and July of this year. So
0: yeah, at Peter Slavinsky, this is, uh, an interesting point that these ma- the release of the maps comes at a time here, right on the heels of these weather events that got everybody's attention. Um, does that mean more people will pay attention to the maps? Does it mean, uh, what does it mean to you, I guess, in terms of the importance of these maps and the timing of the release?
2: Well, I, I think it's it is very important and, it, and it's it is a, a good timing. Um, anytime a large event, large destructive event like the ones we've we've seen uh, happen, there's a, a period of time where there's a very large interest from the public uh, in those events and a large interest in getting more knowledge and understanding a bit more about what's happening. And, you know, these maps have been out for a long time. I mean, the majority of Maine has been mapped. Uh, except for York and Cumberland counties which have maps but they're very very old Um, these new preliminary maps that are out that are going to be adopted in this summer like Sue said you know I've compared some images of flooding in various locations along the coast I can't speak for the inland areas because I haven't had a chance to do that um, with some of these maps and they did a pretty good job at pinpointing what was going to get flooded in a one percent event you know was it perfect everywhere no and they're not meant to be um there's always flooding that happens outside of these maps you know out of, outside of map areas as well it's not just in the 100-year floodplain which is again for insurance purposes uh but I think it is it is very very good timing because um again there's a much higher level of interest from both property owners and the general public and uh, you know, community leaders in terms of what might be happening to their tax base, uh, you know, what's gonna happen in terms of reconstruction, uh, how do we respond? You know, these FEMA flood maps are tied to floodplain ordinances, um, which are tied to how we respond to storms in terms of you know, if the building is damaged more than 50%, it's considered condemned or, or it's considered a loss. And then if it's reconstructed it has to meet these new floodplain requirements that each community has and i think it's important to note that you know the, a lot of maine's coastline and inland areas have generally generation generational infrastructure so houses that have been in generations of, of families and they might not be built to the newest codes and i think that's why number one why we why do we see some of the larger impacts that we see uh, and then um number two that might be why we're actually seeing a decrease in flood insurance and because that's you know if you own a home outright you don't quote have to have flood insurance uh so that might be one of the reasons we're seeing that but the timing is very good yeah Jeremy and Keith, yeah and Keith I just wanted to <clears throat> expand on a point
3: that Sue made when she talked about um people with resources being able to f- afford a flood insurance or to replace their home possibly without flood insurance and people who might not be able to replace their house and i think there's an important consideration in all this too which is equity and um social vulnerability uh is what we call it in the um in this field where we need to be considering populations who might not be able to bounce back from these disasters so easily and so If you live in a river floodplain um, and you might not be able to afford insurance on your house, and certainly if the river rises and you can't, um, and if you don't have family in the area, you can't afford to stay in a hotel, uh, you can't, um, you're just getting by with gas and groceries, it can be really, really difficult to navigate these events. And certainly I think that's also true for working waterfront communities and fishing communities that, um, you know, these folks are self-employed. Um, employed in natural resources. And, you know, if you can't get your boat in the water, you can't work, you can't make money. Um, That's a really big hardship on the family. And so we've worked for several years with uh, Professor Eileen Johnson at Bowdoin College, who developed a social vulnerability index for Maine that talks about the most vulnerable uh, populations in the state. Um, And this work has really been pivotal in changing the conversation about how we try to respond to extreme
0: weather events. Let's, uh, let's go to the phones and to Torbert, who is calling from York. Torbert, welcome to the program. Good morning, Keith and Guest. I have a simple question. Somebody blurted out something about the left and I whether mandates uh, from programs like this. The real mandate is that there's a forced subsidy from all the tax base Um, that is subsidizing uh, shorefront property owners uh, who are almost by definition, aside from the working waterfront and fishermen, who could be carved out for help. Why should wealthy people be subsidized by the tax base? Anybody want to? Yes, go ahead, Sue.
1: Sure, I'll take a little bit of piece of that anyway. One thing that um, I want people to know is that flood insurance rating has changed over the last few years. So for the last 50 years that the NFIP has been in business, there used to be subsidies uh, for older buildings that were built prior to uh, flood hazard maps or having any kind of flood elevations. That's no longer the case uh, for anybody since the introduction of risk rating 2.0 Uh, subsidies have by and large gone away. Uh, So for some people, that's gonna mean that, you know, flood insurance will go up. For some, it might mean um, that it goes down, but I just think it's important that, you know, people understand that, you know, flood insurance, you know, our tax dollars are, you know, no longer subsidizing these kinds of properties. And to piggyback on something that Jeremy said, I think you know some people uh, think that they if they're not in a mapped flood hazard area, that they're not at risk. And that's definitely not so because there are and will always be flooding events that are higher than the magnitude of what FEMA has mapped, which is the 1% annual chance. And in the last five years, 40% of claims have come from outside that map flood hazard area. So I think it's important for people to know that you may have, you know resid- residual risk um, in those areas.
0: All right, We're going to take another quick uh, break. And when we come back, we'll hear from Carl. In and we'll hear from you. Hopefully give us a call. The number 1-800-399-3566. That's 1-800-399-3566. This is Maine Calling. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Keith Shortall. You're listening to Maine Calling. We're learning about the causes and impacts of flooding where the biggest problem areas are in Maine and what residents and communities need to know to prepare and respond to flooding. Joining me, Peter Slavinsky with the Maine Geological Survey, Jeremy Bell with the Nature Conservancy in Maine, and Sue Baker with Maine Floodplain Management. Join the conversation, the number 1-800-399-3566. Send a brief email to talk at org, or post to our Facebook page or to instagram we'll go to carl in a moment but first chrissy on facebook asks how can we better prepare for these events in the future and what is the important role of conservation in all of this jeremy
3: yeah i love this question and um i was going to say that there is one positive uh positive story to come out of this i know this all these storms have been it's been a lot of doom and gloom but um but uh there are ways to make uh, uh, to be nature positive and prepare for climate change. And one of the best ways that we have been working on for for a long time alongside a lot of different partners is upsizing culverts, the culverts that um, pass streams under the road network. And um, and we have heard a lot of good stories again at the governor's um, special meeting on flooding this week about upsized culverts that we originally were putting these in for fish passage. We call them stream, stream smart culverts, but we figured out early on about 10 years ago that these are also great at passing flood events. And so for the last 10 years or so, we've been um, also building these culverts to uh, not only to pass fish, but to pass really big flood events, the hundred year and bigger. And we heard a lot of stories um, positive about these um, new upsized culverts, that have passed easily these flows. Meanwhile, we've seen a lot of pictures in the paper on uh, on main public's website. I've seen them and other locations of failed roads and failed culverts uh, that put people at risk. Um, you know, when there's fast moving water, you might not know the road isn't actually there. If you try to get through the water, it's very dangerous, unfortunately. Uh, there were a couple of deaths and I believe it was in the town of Mexico or Rumford, sadly, tragically. And um, and so these upsized culverts are an example of a nature-based approach that really works. And we, um, I think as a state also need to think about other ways like on the coast, Um, Peter and I both have worked on researching improved living shorelines, so for example, shellfish beds that can reduce wave action, reduce erosion along the coast, and try to learn how to build those better in our challenging environment with big tides, a lot of ice more so than the rest of the East Coast, and we really need to learn how to um, do some of these other techniques that are important to make these projects both people positive but also nature positive at the same time.
0: Uh, Okay, we're trying to reconnect with Carl here. In the meantime, there's an email from Bruce. I'm a land surveyor and deal with flood insurance and flood zone issues every day. Uh, Please ask uh, about the limit of the payout for a claim in the flood insurance program. My understanding is that it's only $250,000. And with the cost of houses being replaced, sometimes in the millions, the insurance doesn't seem to cure all the problems. Sue?
1: And that's absolutely true. So flood insurance availability, the limit for uh, residential buildings is $250,000. For commercial buildings, it's $500,000 and contents coverage can also be um, had up to $100,000. And that includes uh, people that are renting in the flood hazard area, they can get contents coverage um, as well. And so that's absolutely true depending on what the building value is. There may not be um, enough, enough coverage from the NFIP, um, if their mortgage is more than that, um, sometimes they're required to get private flood insurance outside of the program um, in order to uh, be able to, you know, have that risk covered.
0: And real quick, what's, what are the premiums now, annually, and are they projected to go up?
1: Well, I think it's insurance, so I think we can probably always expect premiums to go up um, that's really hard for me to answer because there are a number of different burials that go into making the flood insurance premium. Uh, for example, how far you are located from a water body, what type of construction your house is made of. Mm-hmm. So there are a number of variables that are considered behind the scenes. So that's going to have an individual answer, depending where they're located. Sure. So Is the there a best, range,
0: though, of like 1,200? Uh, uh, to. Uh,
1: I really can't say can't it. that. Okay. It's, uh, it's really dependent on the amount of coverage, gotcha. the amount of deductible. There are so many factors, but an insurance agent would be able to to answer those questions
0: sure sure okay sorry to try to put you putting you on the spot there uh yeah. let's go to i promised carl and minot hi carl welcome to the program
3: uh hello i'm carl i uh got a bs degree in geology way back in the 80s and first learned of uh global warming from a mineralogy professor in 1983 and uh, though i didn't practice geology became an engineer i do follow the subject closely And I'm curious what these government agencies are currently saying, uh, what the range is for sea level rise along the coast, because people like Professor Richard Alley out of Penn State, 40-year glaciologist, says they are grossly underestimating the sea level rise rate, of which he says it could easily be 15 to 20 feet by 2100. Hopefully it's not that much, but it is done. It's fixed that it's going up dramatically. That die has been cast. Yeah,
0: OK, Carl. Uh, Peter, do you want to?
2: Sure, I can, I can address that. Um, so Maine, uh, through its Maine Climate Council and Maine won't wait process, um, looked at a range of different sea level rise scenarios that were put out to inform the U.S. National Climate Assessment uh, back in 2017. And this is the data that was used to inform the Maine won't wait process, which was uh, a report that was put out in 2020 and um, Maine looked at the 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 range the scientific and technical subcommittee looked at a range of the different scenarios and settled on what we call the intermediate scenario for uh commit to manage is the way it was termed so that's something we need to put into our regulations it's something we need to commit to manage for and that was one and a half feet by the year uh, 2050 and four feet by the year 2100 um and yet at the same time we understood that there was still a lot of uncertainty as it relates to some of the major contributors to sea level rise so there was a recommendation to to plan to prepare for a higher range of sea level rise and that was uh, three feet by the year 2050 and uh, uh roughly nine feet by the year 2100. this isn't something that necessarily goes into regulations but when we're thinking about larger uh, more critical pieces of infrastructure like, way like wastewater treatment plants or oil storage facilities along the coastline uh, they need to take those into consideration um, since then there have been some new reports that have come out of uh, the national oceanic atmospheric administration working with other eight a- national agencies called an interagency task force a uh, new report came out in 2022 uh, that pretty much Tell us that the range of sea level rise scenarios that Maine is currently planning for are still pretty valid. Um, there still is uncertainty. You know, what has happened is instead of our uncertainty being like this out to the year 2050, a really wide range, are, 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 are the certainty associated with the scenarios out to 2050 are all a lot closer. So we have a good, uh, much more constrained range. Once we get out beyond 2050, there's still a question of how high this might go and I think one of the really important things the caller brings up is in no way are we suggesting that in 2100 sea level is going to stop rising in other words we're now considering planning out to the year 2120 2130 2150 uh, and providing guidance out to those ranges because sea levels are going to continue to rise uh, beyond the year 2100 and I think that's something really important that we have to remember
0: Uh, Let's go to Ethan in Saco. Hi, Ethan. Welcome.
2: Hi there. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, Build back better
3: is a phrase that means that you have to first break something in order to build it back. And Lyndon Baines Johnson said, he who controls the weather controls the people. And I'm wondering uh, that if we don't have some technologies that are in play here that we don't know about uh, two storms hitting exactly at high tide back to back raises a eyebrow for me. I am very concerned about the weather manipulation. Uh, We're talking about climate uh, geoengineering out out loud now. What about the military's use of...
0: Yeah, uh, I, 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 don't, I don't... Unless anyone has a thought on that, I think we'll... Well, um, I think one,
3: one thing that I think is that t- um, <clears throat> uh, technology is not necessarily the best solution. And I think the, um, the simplest and most natural solutions, like, uh, you know, the technology of moving a building out of the way is a surefire way to protect yourself from climate change. And so um, I, I do, even though uh, the question was a little bit surprising, I think that the the um that the the point about technology not being the answer, I agree with that. I think that there are simple tried and true solutions that can um help us to cope with these problems we're facing.
0: Well, can you just just run through them quick here? We've only got a few minutes left, but I do want to touch
3: here. Yeah, getting out of harm's way, so um repetitive um structures that are repeatedly getting hit by storm events and uh and that we know are low. Um, you know like i said i think in my comments at the beginning i think we really have to think about does it make sense to rebuild those buildings and and um and do those do as painful as this conversation is i think it needs to be discussed more and more because weather events are going to get started um like this are going to be more and more common and uh, and so moving out of harm's way uh definitely one of the better ones um thinking about how we build our infrastructure, where we build it into the future, better shoreland zoning and both on river, riverfront and coastal can go a long way to um,
2: helping to uh, address the problems.
3: Yeah,
0: Peter, can we adapt some of the structures that we have
2: now? Oh, most certainly. Um, there, I think I mentioned it earlier, you know, avoid adapt, protect and relocate. But adaptation is, is one of the things that we certainly are in uh, a good position for, I think, especially along the Uh, main coastline and also the inland areas, Uh, you know, a lot of these structures that were were damaged um, in all of the different storms weren't elevated, Uh, you know, and I have gone out and looked at some of the sites, you know, uh, damage along the coastline, and I'm looking at a structure that's elevated next to a structure that wasn't, and the structure that wasn't lost all its siding, it lost its garage, part of the house is falling down, while the structure next to it that was elevated, they had sand that washed underneath their posts that's so they had to clean up some sand that was it um so there is, i think there's a really really important aspect of having resilient infrastructure in place and that's why i made the comment earlier that a lot of maine's housing is older um and our, our infrastructure is older and it's not built up the code so the chance of of, of, relo- of relocation certainly makes makes sense or moving back certainly makes sense if you can um, voluntarily or if your structure was knocked down reconstructing back but uh, building to code and building up is always gonna help um, these, these, these structures that are in harm's way. And you know, this gets to uh, the concept of prepare. Um, and I was thinking of you know, just some things that in my community of Scarborough that worked really well, um, you know, the community was really good at preemptively closing roads and putting it out on their social media uh, and, you know, just like we see school closings on TV, I think we need to have an announcement on main public and all that. We need to have the same thing for what roads are closed in which communities when these storms are you know hitting. So that kind of preparation and that kind of communication is really important. And I also think um, property owners and communities need to really understand flood stages and flood predictions um, and tools that are out there and understand where you are in reference to those different flood elevations that are gonna be achieved, whether it's on a river or on the open coast. And then finally, understanding what the, your flood risk is as it relates to the flood maps, I think is really, really important and things that homeowners
1: and communities can do as well.
0: Yeah, Sue Baker, any, any final thoughts here in the last few moments?
1: No, I think Pete, you know, he knows a lot about floodplains and he's doing a really good job. Um, I think that's true. Um, Particularly, you know, what was said about, you know, elevating your building when you've got older buildings and we sure have, you know, a whole lot of that kind of housing stock. It's really important to try to move back and move up as best we can to help prepare.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, there's so much more we could get to. Uh, we got to a little bit, but not nearly enough. Um, but I really appreciate you uh, all being here today. Interesting conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, Thank you,
2: Sue, Thank you Sue Baker.
0: Much. Sorry, Sue Baker, the program coordinator for Maine Floodplain Management. Peter Slavinsky is a marine geologist at the Maine Geological Survey, and Jeremy Bell, program director for climate adaptation with the Nature Conservancy in Maine. Today's sound engineer was Sam Tracy. Maine Calling is produced by Jonathan Smith and Cindy Hahn. You can visit mainecalling.org for our audio archive or to subscribe to Maine Calling's weekly newsletter. Tomorrow on the show, we'll find out how being better listeners can help us in many aspects of our lives. I'm Keith Shortall. You've been listening to Maine Calling on Maine Public Radio.